This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 7, Episode 22, Microcasting. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. And we're going to go to questions from Facebook. So, first question is... Um, like to hear our thoughts on prologues and possibly epilogues as well. When do we use them and when not to? <laughs> Man, I've heard a guy on a panel at a conference say that if a book has a prologue, he doesn't even read it. And I thought, that's a stupid thing to do. I love prologues. I use them. I read them. I think they're very cool. Um, a prologue can do some things for you. It can also be a crutch. Mm-hmm. And the things it can do for you is it allows you to cheat a little bit. You can, you can deviate from whatever your format of your book's going to be. If it's a first person, it gives you an easy, I'm going to do a third person, or vice versa. If you're going to be setting in a certain time period in an epic fantasy, you can show another time period without, it, it gives a clue to the reader, hey, this is probably not what the whole thing is going to be like, so I can, I, I can use this as part of the story without getting too attached to what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Pro, uh, prologues are, are very useful if you are writing something that is epic, or something that you need to lay a lot of groundwork for. Star Wars is the story of Luke Skywalker. Starts with a prologue of a space battle. Mm-hmm. You know? It's also useful if you're setting something in the real world where the protagonist doesn't know about oh, the secret world. Yes, because mm-hmm. it allows you to show the secret world so that the audience knows yeah. this is coming and they don't think this Again, is going to be uh, the Matrix story of yep. Neo. But it starts with a prologue of magical people beating each other up. Mm-hmm. Yep, um, and those are just the way it can be a crutch is if you feel you absolutely have to use one every time, which you don't have to. Yeah, I, um, when I, the prologues that I hate are the ones in uh, the movies where the first five minutes of movie is, this is the world we are living in, and these are the things that have gone before, and you know this is the secret whatever. And when you get to the story, uh, when I get to the story, I realize these pieces could have been communicated through the narrative just fine, and it would have been a voyage of discovery for us and would have been a lot more fun. Um, I think that if your prologue is there to help establish the feel of epicness or whatever, mm-hmm. then it's probably required. But if your prologue is there um, oh, yeah. because there's mm-hmm. these cool story pieces that you want to give, yes. tell you what, save those cool story pieces and let the characters give them to us because I think that way they'll mean more. Excellent. Um, Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring movie treads that line very carefully, and I think you could make a, an argument for it going either way. Yep, yep. The, the uh, James Bond always actually opens yep. with a prologue. Mm-hmm. An action sequence, because mm-hmm. they know they're not going to necessarily be able to do the action sequence right off. So a prologue action sequence to remind you, James Bond is full of action and people dying and fun. Yeah. Yep. And then we get to spend 40 mm-hmm. minutes putting pieces in place yeah. before we get to the next one. All right, next one's actually a question for Howard. Someone would like some tips on using visual, on using drawings to get across setting. Specifically for you. Ooh, drawing to get across setting. Yeah. Um, understand that I, as a cartoonist, I cheat a lot. In they which... want to know how you cheat, I think. Okay. I think they want to be able um, to do it themselves. Uh, I, if I'm looking to create a large room, um, I raise the horizon line and I use thinner lines. If I'm looking to create a small room, there might be no horizon and you can see you know, the outlines of you know, uh, window frames or control panels sitting on, sitting on walls. But if I want to communicate, you know, sci-fi versus fantasy, 
uh, I, you know, I'm not drawing fantasy, but uh, if I were trying to do fantasy, then wall patterns would be full of stonework and wood paneling. Um, and I wouldn't do fine detail on the wood paneling, but one little vertical squiggle that suggests a knot hole uh, is enough to say, oh, this wall's made of wood. Um, whereas, you know, using the French curve to throw a couple of lines, uh, a couple of parallel swoopy curvy lines says, oh, you know, that's, that's not something that you could build medievally. This is something that's on a space station. Um, and so I, I use those sorts of those sorts of things a lot. Now, if you look at uh, if you if you look at the um, if you look at what storyboard artists will often do uh, often do for movies, um, start looking for signature elements that communicate not just that this setting is fantasy or sci-fi, but that this setting has its own flavor. Um, and that's uh, that's I, I could spend twenty minutes just talking about that, so I won't. All right. We'll need to get another cartoonist on and have you guys fire back and forth at each we'll other one of these times. We'll argue so much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next one is, um, we always get questions about how we name our characters. We've been trying to give some help on that, but does the podcasters, do any of you have a simple trick to just throw out for this person who wants help naming things? I have three. Okay. Your spam box has fantastic names in it. You can raid the spam box. Ooh. The next one is the ever-changing book of names, which is a piece of software that you can download and you can create your own naming structure the way Brandon created one for um, the uh, way, way, of, way of, kings. of kings. My brain was offering me the name of kings, and I'm like, well, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the ever-changing book of names, you can set up um, a naming pattern structure, and it will kick out names for you based on that structure. It will also give you names that, for instance, sound Icelandic but aren't actually Icelandic, which right. allow you to create uh, specific names for uh, for different geographic areas. And then um, behindthename.com, which is a name database, and it allows you to search for names based on meaning, uh, gender, uh, where they are based in the world. Um, it's, it's a fantastic resource. Yeah, I look for baby names, you know, baby name sites online, look for the definitions of names, um, and uh, I use that as a starting point. You know, sometimes it's because the name, the meaning of the name is one that I believe the parents would have been familiar with and would have chosen on purpose. Sometimes, you know, I'm making a subtle statement about this character's role or about the opposite of this character's role. Um, and sometimes I'm just making sure that it, <clears throat> uh, it doesn't fit awkwardly. So I've been doing a lot of genealogical indexing lately. And there's a couple of big websites where you can do that, like Ancestry.com and FamilySearch, whatever that is. And that has been really a great source of names. Okay. Um, you guys no longer have excuses for not having names, because those are all excellent yeah. suggestions. We don't want to hear this question again, audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. we can hear it from new listeners, at which point we will tell them to go back to episode number uh, 722. Right? So the new listeners have just come back to listen to us telling them to come back. It's very, very circular right now. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> Next question is, um, if you had to do over again, if you were doing it right now, would you self-publish Brandon, Dan, and Mary? Howard already self-publishes. So um, I would not, personally. Um, the reason I would not is I am doing big epic fantasies. And currently, in the market, the big epic fantasy, I believe, is much better off um, with a with a mainstream publisher, 
um, in New York uh, for shelf space and for just the amount of editing and work that, uh, that needs to go into these and the, the amount of marketing. I wouldn't do it. Uh, maybe that'll change in five years, but I certainly think my publisher has done well, very well by me. And even you know, my latest books still sell 50% in the bookstores. And getting that 50% in the bookstores is a pretty big deal. I also would not, um, and understand that having come from an art major background I, um, and, and working as an art director, I actually have all of the skill set to self-publish and I, uh, I have avoided it like the plague. Um, not because I think it's bad, but because I am much happier to have people uh, give me money and then for ha to have them do the work. Mm -hmm. than for me to have to do all that work myself. I'm, I'm, it eats my brain to do it. It's, it eats my story brain. Um, I did self-publish a book last summer, mm -hmm. and comparing the two experiences, how much work I put into it versus uh, what I got out of it, um, I am very happy that I have a publisher I can go through. Um, that may change as time goes on, but as of right now, self-publishing has not been... a fraction of how successful my regular publishing has been. All right. So next question. If your character has a great deal of power, they're a deity, an angel, or something else, high-powered figure, you know, mage with a lot of, lot of power, um, what do you do to make sure that they're not too perfect or that they can't solve problems just too easily? Kryptonite. Okay. Make sure that they have a weakness um, that they have to guard, whether it's a personal weakness, whether it's something that they care about or whether it's something that will diminish their power. Put the stakes outside the realm in which they're powerful. Yeah. Superman can't be hurt, but Lois Lane can be, and Superman can't be everywhere. Here's the thing. The question I would ask you is, why are you making your character so powerful? Now, granted, if you want to tell a story about a deity, that's great, but that story seed that made you want to do that should have had some sort of conflict in it inherently. And if there wasn't, you don't have a story. And I don't know why you're driving to tell the story um, specifically about that. Uh, go read, um, go read the, the, the essay I wrote on how limitations are so much more interesting than the powers themselves, and think about why you're making your character so powerful. The Greeks told, you know, wonderful stories about deities, and uh, most of them involved deities fighting with other deities. You know, right. the, they, mm -hmm. <laughs> they had conflicts up at their level. Now, t I think Howard's point is great, you know, put the stakes outside their realm of competence. One of the, my favorite superheroes is a Marvel superhero called the Sentry, who is basically defined as the most powerful superhero there is. He can do anything, but he's also completely crippled by, you know, a host of mental illnesses. Mm. And so, you know, he can do anything if he's lucid enough to do it right. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Okay, we need to stop for our book of the week. Our book of the week this week is going to be given to us by Mary. Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie by Alan Bradley. This is a mystery. There are no supernatural elements in this at all, but what I love about these books is that the main character is Flavia Deleuze. She is an 11-year-old genius with chemistry, and her specialty are poisons. It's set in the early 1950s in England, right after the war, and uh, she solves mysteries. I love these books so much I can't even. I eat them like candy. Except they're poisonous. Except they're poisonous. She does not actually poison people. Well, she doesn't do <laughs> much know. poisoning. <laughs> There's no fatal poisoning. <laughs> But okay. she does. Uh, Spoiler she does, warning. Well, no, there is fatal poisoning. But anyway, <laughs> point being, she doesn't kill people. She solves murders. Okay. Well, head on out to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Kick off a 14-day free trial membership and have a listen to... Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie by Alan Bradley. And I'm also going to mention, uh, just as a motivational thing, this was his first book and he was 70, year old, 70 years old when he published it. There you go. So never give up, Yep, sweet listeners. All right. So next question is, how do, we avoid, how do you avoid doing too much foreshadowing? Oh. Man, now, when you, say, when you have? say too much foreshadowing, yeah. you mean like heavy-handed foreshadowing? I think it's, he's meaning heavy-handed foreshadowing dun, or dun, 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 you know, dun. your reader gets it too early. Um, and my answer to this one's pretty, pretty easy. Go ahead and write the book and don't worry too much. Yeah. Foreshadowing is yeah. the easiest thing to fix in post. Yeah. Easiest. Give mm-hmm. it to a reader, ask them, you know, write down when you figure out the, the mystery of this. They write it down, you see where they got it, you do that with a couple of people, you'll see where people are getting it, and you can adjust your foreshadowing to match. Yeah. I also, um, the way I write is that I have people reading along as I go, and every couple of chapters I ask them what they think is going to happen next. Um, and if they have guessed too soon, I adjust. Now, I do want to point out to people foreshadowing is one of those things that you should, you know, fix in post, but that can be very hard. I mean, emotionally hard for you to do. And and The Hollow City is a good example. My book that's coming out in July. The, uh, you know, the first read through that, a lot of the secrets were painfully obvious. And the writing group actually didn't like a lot of the book because of how obvious those secrets were. Right. And you just have to accept that that's going to happen and then have another wave of readers you can try yep. the fixed version on. And it's one of those things that's just tough with writing groups because you keep thinking in your head, but it's going to work, I promise. I just have to get it down first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. So any tips on trimming your fiction? Uh, they said looking right at me, so I'll go ahead and talk first to give the rest of you time to, <laughs> time to think. I don't know why you're asking me because I obviously trim the worst. Um, <laughs> though people do know that I generally um, cut about 15 to 20% of my novels. Um, and I do that because I look for redundancy. We naturally talk. You'll hear it anytime someone's speaking. We naturally write with redundancy. We say the same thing twice. I look for that and I cut out half of it. Yeah, I do the same thing. The other thing that I look at are the um, beginnings and endings of scenes and chapters because a lot of times the language there is stuff that I'm using to get myself into it. Mm. And, um, you know, we've got the the mantra uh, in early, out late. Oh, sorry, in late, out early. Good heavens. (laughs) Um, And so I can mechanically make that happen later if I just go back and 
sometimes I will just go back and cut the first paragraph. Yeah, I do that. I do that exact style of trimming while I am writing the dialogue. Usually, the first couple of panels of dialogue, I realize, oh, that was just me getting into the voice of the character, and now I can prune that out and get to the meat of these four panels of material. Just cut every fourth word. Yeah. And then tell people you're doing Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> All right, last question for, uh, for this microcast. Um, we have a lot of people asking about flashbacks in kind of the same breaths they're asking about prologues. Do we view flashbacks the same way as we view prologues? What do you think? I think if you can put a flashback in a prologue with a mirror scene. Oh, mirror scene <laughs> meaning the person describes Describing themselves, describing themselves yeah. as they're looking in the mirror. Yeah. Uh, if you can sell that, you can write anything, but please don't try. Okay. Um, <laughs> flashbacks can be very useful, but they're frequently overused, and um, and it's it's often a way of, of, you know, writing lazily. Where I find flashbacks most effective is when they are... Um, they are triggered by something that the character is experiencing mm -hmm. in that moment. Right. Because we are, we are all the time in real life thinking back about something that is going on. But you want to avoid having the flashback in the middle of the action scene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you want to avoid flashbacks where they are going to uh, uh, stop your forward momentum. And you want to avoid flashbacks that are, are not internally triggered by what's happening with the character. Yeah. Um, I'm going to recommend that you read uh, George R.R. R. Martin. And I'm spe thinking specifically of the character of Jamie Lannister. He is a big warrior, and the early stuff you get from him is very present. It's all in the now. And then he is injured, and he kind of can't fight anymore. And from that point on, he starts dwelling on the past, and you get a lot more flashbacks. And so drawing out of the character that way makes them work. Well, and the other thing to keep in mind is that you know, even as you listen to this cast, and you ask us a question, well, um, this is what I did. Mm -hmm. This is what I did. This is, it, flashbacks are one of the ways in which we communicate with each other. You know, you're asking me a question, and I'll tell you about something I have done that, uh, that perhaps solved that. And so it's a very natural way to communicate. Um, now, whether or not the whole POV of the book shifts into that time period, uh, that, that just depends on, that's just execution on the information. I will say, though, I've used flashbacks a lot, um, particularly in Way of Kings. Um, and I would suggest, and I've tried various me methods, I find that for me, break and have the flashback as a separate chapter hmm. um, works. My favorite way of doing um, flashbacks, or you know, the way that um, the way that Name of the Wind's all a big flashback. Um, yeah. If they, if it's powerful enough to need a flashback, then saying, "All right, let me tell you the story." Break, and we actually go into in scene telling the story inside of um, going on. I prefer much more than the in the middle of a of a of a chapter you. You kind of voice into one and then voice out of one. Um, doesn't work as well for me. I think it depends on how big the flashback is. Mm -hmm. um, if it is a whole giant long story, yes, I agree with you. But if it's something like uh, she remembered putting the kettle on that morning and then you need to remind the reader that she had yeah. put the kettle on, that's still a flashback. But I suppose. I don't view that as flashback in the same way, but yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah, it's, it is still a flashback, but it, in my opinion, it is a flashback that is handled somewhat more gracefully mm -hmm. um, yeah. in that it is motivated by action that is happening on the page. Okay. The ultimate rule for a flashback is the same as the ultimate rule for a prologue, which is if you can make it work, yeah. it will work. Don't yeah. worry about rules telling you what you can and can't do. And so I would suggest letting readers get to know your character first before you spend a lot of time in flashback. Yeah to who they were. The, the other thing, uh, the other litmus test for me is um, cut the flashback, hand it to a beta reader, 
and see if they still understand the story. And if they do, do not put the flashback back in. Okay. We are out of time. And, um, oh man, I had a good writing prompt too. Oh. Oh. Write a flashback. I guess, write a flashback. <laughs> sure, we'll do the in easy In a prologue one. with I, the mirror scene. With the mirror scene. <laughs> this has been Ryan's Excuses. You have excuses, now go write. No, they have a very, very good excuse. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> That was lame. I should have written it down. Oh, well. Good night, kids. <laughs>